Well, in my Christmas sermons, I've been arguing that we are too familiar with these Christmas stories. And we've heard them so many times that we assume we know what's in there. And in fact, there's a lot of little stuff that's not really in there that we have sort of put in there, like barnacles on the ship, and we've added these extra pieces. And as we come to the Epiphany story and try to finish up the Christmas story, you, you, you may not be surprised then to find out there's a lot more to this story than we typically think, and that there's a lot of stuff we add to this story that uh, is not really in there. We saying, we three kings from Orient are. Well, if you read a Bible story, I'm going to read it in a second, you're going to find the Bible story does not say how many there are. Okay, there's three gifts, but it doesn't say how many disciples or how many wise men there were. In the Eastern tradition, it's actually normally 12. Okay, we tend to sing about three, but it just says there's three gifts. They are almost certainly not kings. We're going to talk about who they really were. And they're probably not really from the Orient. They're probably actually from sort of Iraq, more east, from your perspective, northeast of Israel. And in fact, we're going to show that uh, they they don't come when Jesus is born. In fact, Jesus is probably even walking by the time the wise men get there. Okay, so let's look at the story. Let me read it, and then I'm going to just track the story with a little bit of uh, cultural, historical, textual, color commentary, if you will. And... uh, Then we're going to see kind of where the story takes us. So we're in Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the high priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. And behold, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So who were these wise guys? Well, they're almost certainly not kings. They're not listed a number. It could be two, could be 20. We don't know. We know they bring three gifts. This word magi is, is the Greek word used here, and it's a pretty particular word at this period of time. It's the same word that we get the word magic from. Okay, magi, magic. Okay, and, and so what, what the magi actually were, were um, kind of a priestly class from the area of Medes, 
and uh, from the people of the Persians. So modern-day Iraq, sort of toward the east of Iraq. So it would have been northeast of Israel. They're probably, we would label them, of the Zoroastrian religion today. Now, what does that mean? Um, Well, they were people that really wanted to know secret knowledge. They were very into interpreting dreams. They were very into reading the stars and sort of astrology. Okay, Um, the same stuff you would read in the paper today. That's what they they were looking at the stars to see, okay, when was somebody born? What's going on in the stars? They also loved prophecy. And they collected prophecies from all over the place. They had Egyptian prophecies. They had... uh, Prophecies that people would bring from the East. And of course, they had a lot of the Jewish prophecies because a lot of the Jewish people had been in exile in their land up in Iraq. Okay, this was where Babylon was. This is where Persia was. This is where the Assyrians were from. And so they had a lot of the Jewish prophecies on top of all these other prophecies. So they, they wanted to know these secret sort of knowledge. knowledge. In fact, the word magi after the first century becomes kind of a derogatory term. Like like you magician, you quack, you fortune teller. You know what I mean? It actually becomes a really kind of negative term. The important thing is they're not Jewish. Okay? They're Gentiles. They're clearly not from Israel. They're not Israelite. They are Gentiles. In fact, they're pagans. They're from a religion that does not believe that Israel's God is the one true God. And yet they have the Jewish prophecies. And probably they're looking particular at the prophecies of a man named Balaam. Do you remember the story of Balaam? Okay, Balaam, his donkey talks to him. Okay, Balaam is also a pagan prophet who gets brought in and he makes makes some prophetic words about how a star and a scepter shall rise in Israel and there will be, that person will rule. This is in Numbers 22 to 24. And so probably these... These people look at this and say that at some point there's going to be some kind of star that comes out of Israel and there's going to be some kind of king that is to be born. And so they see some kind of star in the sky, some kind of astrological thing. We don't know what that is. Some people have tried to link it to a comet or an alignment of planets. None of the timing seems to work out. And I'll show you later why I think that's really not what's going on here. Um, But for some reason, they see this star, this astrological thing, And they get in their mind that this prophecy is being fulfilled. So they decide they're going to go and worship this new king that was born. So they start traveling from their land and they go where all kings should be born, which is in the capital. They assume if a new king is born, that the old king is the father, right? I mean, it's a logical step. Okay, so at this point, everybody understand they're not really following the star. Okay, they're not following the star yet. The star just told them the king was to be born. They came to where the king should be born. So these strange foreign travelers get an audience with King Herod, sometimes called Herod the Great. Now, it's worth a little bit of bio here about King Herod. Herod was also not Jewish. He was assigned to be ruler of Israel by the Romans, okay, by the Roman Caesar. And Herod was brilliant. I mean, he, he, he's called Herod the Great because he built just amazing things. Built, the temple, built up the temple in Jerusalem, built a number of cities, um, including one on the sea that had a harbor. I mean, it, just amazing the stuff that Herod built. Herod was also nuts. Okay? Herod was probably literally, I mean, clinically, um, you know, he thought everybody was out to get him. He was paranoid. Okay? 
Herod, uh, if, you, if you read about Herod the Great, he, had, he was married to several different ladies. His very favorite wife at one point said something to him that got him upset. She thought, he thought she was after her, and she, he had her killed, his favorite wife. Three of his children, three of his sons, he had killed because he thought they were after his throne. Now, in his defense, a couple of them were. Okay? And there were people after his throne, but not near as many as Herod sort of thought in his head. Okay? So, so this guy, Herod, he's not Jewish. He follows the, the, the Jewish law about diet strictly. Okay? The guy never ate ham or bacon in his life. And he followed all these rules, but he would have his own son killed. So much so that, that it's, it's reported that um, Augustus once said about Herod, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Okay? If you were Herod's pig, you were safe. If you were his son, you were not safe at all. So when the text says that Herod is troubled and all Jerusalem with him, that is exactly how it worked. Okay? When Herod was troubled, everybody's troubled. Okay? When Herod gets troubled, you're like, I don't think I'm going to go to the temple, to the, to, to the palace today. I'm going to leave Herod alone. So Herod turns, he hears these, these uh, magi and this prophecy. And actually, of everybody in this story, Herod's probably the one that takes this the most seriously. Okay, he wants to hear what goes on. He gathers the chief priests and scribes and says, hey, where is this child to be born? They go back, do a little research, find this random reference that maybe Bethlehem is the place in Micah. Um, the fact that they don't go visit to even check, that they have to go look up this scripture, means probably not that many people were taking it seriously that Bethlehem would be the place where the Messiah would come from. So also, it's so interesting to me that none of these scribes even go check. You ever wonder that in the story? Like, here's these wise men coming from a foreign land, and they say, oh, the Messiah is born. Where is he going to be born? And the scribes look it up and they say Bethlehem, but none of them even go check. Like, they don't even believe it. They don't believe that the Messiah is being born. They don't actually believe that he's going to be born in Bethlehem because nobody makes the five-mile trek over just to check it out. So, Herod gathers them, and he, and he gathers them, the text says specifically privately. He doesn't want all his scribes and everybody else to know what he's doing. And he says, hey, come back, tell me where that child is so I can go worship him. Everybody, that is what we call a lie. Okay? He is not going to go worship him. We're going to see the great lengths that he's going to go to make sure this child doesn't. And we, we already know from history that Herod will go to great lengths to make sure no other king is going to threaten his kingship. So the wise men leave, heading towards Bethlehem, and then the text tells us they see the star that they had seen, but now they can sort of follow the star. Now the star takes them towards Bethlehem and actually takes them towards a particular house. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know what star is right over my house. Do you? Could you follow a star to church today? No, there's tons of them. So the, the idea has always been in church... A lot of people try to make really natural assumptions about this. But the idea is really, what kind of star could lead you to a particular house? Well, that's not a star. That's not a comet. That's not an alignment of planets. And so the traditional understanding has been that it's a what? What is it on your nativity sets? An angel. It's typically understood that it's got to be an angel, that this bright light in the sky is actually an angel that comes and rests over. Text doesn't say angel. But it responds a lot more like an angel than a star. 
So the wise men come to a house. They find Mary and the child. And if you pay attention to the text, in the English it catches it well. The child Jesus. In the, in the last chapter he was a baby. Okay, but now he's a child. That word child could mean he's older. Okay, implies he's not a baby anymore. He's actually a little bit older. Probably what has happened is Mary and Joseph had stayed there to kind of recover. Joseph could find work anywhere. And so um, they just hung out in Bethlehem and continued to work, let the child get a little bit older. Um, notice it's also in a house. They're not in a cave or a barn. Now they're definitely in a house. And you can imagine, I, I don't know how you all have been after Christmas, but I have been whooped this week. Anybody else? And then a little bit of travel back and forth to Erie to see family. I am dragging this week. And you can imagine if you were Mary and Joseph and you've been through like the, oh no, I'm pregnant, but it's from the Holy Spirit conversation and then the have to go to Bethlehem and then you finally have the baby in the middle of the night, a bunch of shepherds wake you up. I mean, this has been a long kind of, like if I'm tired, they were really tired after Christmas. And, uh, and so they are, they're just resting there. And uh, don't seem to be any kind of hurry to go back to Nazareth. So these, these wise men come in. These, this is really the first Christian worship to include anybody who's not Jewish. Okay, first Gentile worship service right here. They come in. Uh, many of uh, the, your, the nativity sets have them with the shepherds and the baby. So you understand they're, they're sort of conflating the story. A couple of interesting things that you do see in your nativity sets. One is, again, we're not quite sure where they're from, and they sort of are representative of a lot of different people who are not Jewish. And so in a lot of nativity sets, your wise men, if you look close, are actually multi-ethnic. Okay? If you look at our nativity set, it's not as clear, but there's one wise man that has a little darker skin. Some, wise men, some nativity sets is actually a black uh, wise man. There's normally a white wise man. And you can see our, our middle wise man is definitely a white guy. Okay, and then there's normally actually a wise man that has more Asian features. Okay, that has kind of a darker or yellower skin and a little bit, a little bit tighter eye to represent sort of an, an Asian potentially wise man. That doesn't show up as much in, our, in this set either. But go home and look at your nativity set and see if your wise men are actually multi-ethnic. A lot of times they are. Because we're not quite sure where they're from and because they represent people who are not Jewish from all over the place. Now, the other thing they bring is three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And actually, your, uh, this, this, our song, We Three Kings of Orient are captured in a great way. Okay, gold, I crown him, frankincense, incense owns a deity nigh, myrrh, a bitter perfume, breathes a life of gathering gloom. So, what are these things? Well, gold, we can understand gold. It's a precious metal. It's a gift for a king. Although gold is much more accessible to us today. In the ancient world, gold is a, is, is a gift. I mean, gold, you don't just have gold jewelry laying around. Gold is a lot harder to get in the ancient world. This is a king's ransom. This is wealth. I've often wondered what happens to this gold, right? Like, where, where do they spend it on? Um, frankincense is a gum resin that comes from trees and bushes. It's used in religious practice. Okay, so it was a sacred incense uh, offered in Leviticus with the bread in the presence in the, in the temple. 
and it's put into the, what's called the cereal offerings, which are the grain offerings. They would use frankincense to sort of pack those together. It's an incense used in worship. Myrrh is the oddest of the gifts. Myrrh is a fragrant gum resin from South Arabia and North Ethiopia. It comes from a tree, and it's used in perfumes and in medicines, in holy anointing oil and in incense. But its primary use was as a burial spice. It was a burial spice. And so what you would do is as the body decomposes, that kind of smells, you would use something like myrrh to help cover up that smell uh, of a decomposing body. It's actually used on Jesus in John 19.33. And so what did we just sing? Um, glorious, the last verse, Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. Okay. That's the three gifts, right? We worship him as a king. We worship him as God with a, with a holy incense. And then we worship him as a sacrifice, hence the myrrh. Now, some people have also tried to say these are just kingly gifts. Um, some have tried to argue that it's the Old Testament roles of prophet, priest, and king. Um, but you can see the depth of these symbols here. And I think the song actually picks up on that quite well. And I think this also echoes in the Old Testament. In uh, 1 Kings 10, there is this, there's this person called the Queen of Sheba that comes to visit Solomon. And she brings spices, gold, and precious stones. Then this is echoed in Isaiah 60, where um, Isaiah predicts that the wealth of the nations, including gold and silver, would be brought to the Lord. And it's in one of these messianic passages. Okay, so there's a whole history behind bringing gifts like this. So the wise men come, they bring their gifts. There's a kind of, got to be an interesting exchange, right? And um, uh, interesting conversation. Maybe they stay a couple of days. They get to know the family a little bit. Um, maybe this is Mary and Joseph getting new insights into somebody else's perspective on who is their child. Then the wise men are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they take off by another way. Tradition gives them names and gives them more history. But for the Bible, their story stops right there. The story of the Holy Family doesn't. And in fact, it takes kind of a dark turn. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to tell it to you. But an angel comes to Joseph and says, hey, get out of here. Flee to Egypt because Herod's going to seek out to destroy this child. So they do. They pack up. They start the long trek to Egypt. So they live there for I don't know how many years, but it's for a little while. Joseph has a tecton. He can find work anywhere. There would have been a Jewish community in Egypt. Also, he's got a king's ransom. He's had gold and incense and myrrh. He can, he can pay for the trip. Okay, He can pay to stay in Egypt. He can, that's probably where the funds end up getting used. And so... You can imagine what this has been like for this family, though. Right? You, you were in Nazareth. You went through all this stuff. You go to Bethlehem. You go through all this stuff. You finally were sort of settling down in Bethlehem. And then now you're a refugee. You're in another land. You are uh, running. I mean, like it, it was great to celebrate that your child was this great gift, right? Great for the shepherds. Great with the wise men. But now you get a clear understanding that not everybody's going to like your child. What is that like when your child is one, one and a half years old? We don't know how long they're there, but the anxiety must have been terrible. 
Now, when it becomes clear the wise men are not coming back, Herod takes matters into his own hands. He sends his soldiers to Bethlehem and kills all the male children two years old and younger in the area. This is part of the story we never read on Christmas Eve. But it's part of the story. It's part of the story. We can't guess how many children that would have been. Bethlehem is actually not that big of a town, not that big of an area. So how many children this would be, we, we don't know, but we can imagine the tragedy, the pain, and the anger that swept through that community. Terrible catastrophe. And it reflects an Old Testament catastrophe. In Exodus, Pharaoh killed all the male children in Israel. How old? Two years and younger. Who was the one child that was saved? Moses, because he was put in a basket and sent down the river. This sets up a huge theme in Matthew, which is that Jesus is the the new Moses and he is redoing Israel's story. For instance, Moses, what does he do? He gets out of Egypt... He goes through the waters of the Reed Sea, the Red Sea. Then he goes for 40 years in the desert. And then all the time he's giving new laws from Mount Sinai. If you follow in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to be brought out of Egypt. He's going to spend 40 days in the desert after his baptism, which is kind of his Red Sea experience. And then he's going to give the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to give new laws from the mountaintop. So, so Matthew was using this story where Pharaoh is Herod and now Jesus is saved. So after an unknown period of time, Joseph gets another dream to go back to Israel. He decides that Bethlehem is not safe anymore because one of Herod's sons still rules there. So he goes to Nazareth. There Jesus grows up and eventually starts his ministry. So you see, this is an important story. It's important for finishing the Christmas story for a few reasons. Number one, it's setting up a whole bunch of themes in Matthew about Jesus as the new Moses. But, but it's also setting up another theme in Matthew that I think is important for us. Which is in, in Matthew, the, the good Jews, the people who are supposed to know what's going on, the good religious people, often don't understand what's going on. And you know who gets it? The outcasts. The foreigner, the one that shouldn't get it in Matthew, those are the ones that get it. I mean, we're meant in this story to consider the response of Herod and the scribes versus these wise men. Herod doesn't want to worship the child. He wants to destroy the child. The scribes seem to not care about the child. And so part of the question is, what are you going to do with this child? After all, these wise men are the first Gentiles to be included in the worshiping of Christ. They're the first ones to recognize him. That's why we call this epiphany. Aha! They understand. They realize who this child is. So this is a big day for us to celebrate. Because when I look around here, most of us are not Jewish. And so this is a very important day because this is the day where we get to be included in these stories. There's another truth here that we should lift up in the new year. Which is that God protects his plans. He keeps his plans going. He won't let terrible people, terrible decisions derail what his will is going to be. And so as we enter this new year, as we enter Epiphany, may you recognize who Jesus is. And may you worship him in hope. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.